Good morning. It's always a privilege to be back in the pulpit. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 34. We did the first half about of the psalm last week, and we're going to finish up Psalm 34 here this morning. 2005, Oprah Winfrey published a book. It's called Live Your Best Life. And Live Your Best Life has become somewhat of a national trend of late. Now, you can go on Amazon, uh, and she's not the only one that has caught on to this theme, although she may have introduced the phrase to us, live your best life. There's all kinds of different people that are uh, putting their thoughts out there. Best self, be you, only better. This guy, your best life now. Seven steps to living at your full potential. John has his thoughts. Guide to living your best life. Creating your best life. The ultimate life list guide for all you list people. Live your best life. Carla thinks she has something to add out there. This is probably my favorite. Living your best life. According to Nala Cat. I don't know what that book has to say, but if you get it, let me know. <laughs> As, and while we might laugh at some of these ideas, right? Living your best life according to a cat. I think the phrase actually hits a chord in our hearts. I mean, doesn't everyone want to live their best life? I actually don't think it's a bad question to ask. And David knew that this is a question that everyone wants the answer to. And so in our psalm today, as we continue looking at Psalm 34, he asks the question in verse 12. He says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? You know, essentially, he's asking not just who wants to live life, but who wants their best life? Who wants to see good? Who wants happiness and fulfillment and purpose in their lives? And I don't think this is a trick question. This is something that we can all raise our hands and say, yes, me, I I want to live my best life. That's what I want. But in Psalm 34, David ties the pursuit of the good life directly to the fear of the Lord. Remember the backdrop to this psalm. He had just experienced the deliverance of the Lord and realizing the error of his ways, he has resolved to continually praise the Lord and trust in Him. And David's desire for us is not just to read his psalm. It's just not to hear his advice. But he says in verse 8 that we might taste and see the goodness of the Lord. He wants everyone to experience the goodness, the grace of the Lord for themselves. So if you back up a verse in verse 11, he says, come. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's excited to teach the coming 
generations the keys to a good and happy life and ties it directly to the fear of the Lord. He tells us to take a moment to pause, to put away the distractions, to come close, to listen intently, to hear His important instructions so that maybe we might avoid some of His mistakes, but also that we might glean from His wisdom. You know what's wrong with most of the self-help books out there today? They're entirely subjective and self-focused. Advice like, like uh, you can have it all. Celebrate yourself. You are in control of your own destiny. Only make decisions that benefit you. You have all the answers to life within yourself. The list goes on and on. But here's where Christianity is different. Here's what makes being a Christian unique. We find happiness, we find fulfillment, and we find purpose, not in ourselves, but in God. And this is what David is pointing to, an understanding that the fear of the Lord begins with acknowledging that there's something bigger at stake here than just our feelings and our personal happiness. But the God of the universe, the One who created everything around us, the One that created you and created me and gives us life and breath, that He created you, not just for some meaningless existence, but He has created you for His plan and His purpose. So here's what the fear of the Lord is in its most broadest sense. The fear of the Lord is the proper acknowledgement of who God is as we try and strive to live according to His will. There are some who will argue God's existence. And this is neither the time nor the place to have that debate. But if the God of the Bible does exist, then that makes Him the authority of all that there is. Then He gets to define what is good and what is right and what is evil and what is wrong. He gets to say how we ought to live our lives. And so we see as God gives Moses the law in Deuteronomy 10, actually for the second time, he says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So in the next few moments together, we're going to look at David's instructions about the fear of the Lord. We're going to find three principles that will help us gain an understanding of what it really means to fear the Lord and how we ought to live in response to God being His people. So will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we give this time to You. We pray that You would enlighten our minds, our hearts, 
our ears to hear your word, that it would motivate us to follow you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. Lord, be with us as we, as we dive into your word today. We pray in your name. Amen. The first principle that we see here in Psalm 34, the second half, is that the fear of the Lord leads us to godliness and away from sin. Look with me at verse 13. David says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. David tells us that we pursue godliness in our speech as we fear the Lord. Proverbs 18.21 again tells us death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. You know, as Christians, we should understand that there are expectations there are expectations on us of how we are to use our tongues. David gives us a warning to keep our tongue from evil, to keep our tongue from lying. And I'm sure he's thinking to what transpired in the first few verses of the psalm. The story we looked at in First Samuel where David told Jonathan to lie for him. As David runs and flees, he lies to Ahimelech, which results in his death. He lies to the king of Gath as he pretends uh, he's mad. And he's thinking, man, that didn't get me anywhere but trouble. He says, that's not where the fear of the Lord leads. We pursue godliness in our speech. You know, I think we often don't consider the consequences to the things we say. The power of the tongue. And this is what James tells us. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. An outburst of anger. A subtle lie. A harsh word. The spreading of gossip. Lying. Deceit. Boasting, exaggerating, murmuring, grumbling, profane, vulgar, useless speech. These are all ways that we can use our tongue that damages not only our relationship with our Creator, but it damages our relationship with those around us. It causes us harm as we are trying to live a life of happiness and fulfillment. We are looking to live the good life. You know, Spurgeon speaks to this. He understood how an evil tongue and lying lips could cause us to miss out on this good life. When he wrote, Men cannot spit forth poison without feeling some of the venom burning in their own flesh. So then how do we avoid spreading evil with our tongue? Well, the fear of the Lord tells us to look to His Word for instructions. And so we go to passages like Colossians 4, 6 that tell us, hey, our conversation needs to be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we might know how to answer everyone. We look at Ephesians 4 where Paul encourages us. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such as word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. 
We go to Ephesians 5.4, where Paul again says that there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. We look at Hebrews 13, where it's told to us that we should continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, just like the first few verses of this psalm. That the fruit of our lips would give thanks to His name. Our prayer should be Psalm 141.3 Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. What's the best way to keep deceit and lying off of your lips? Pursue good. Make sure that when you speak, your speech is one of goodness and of grace. We avoid evil by doing good. But David goes beyond our speech. And he tells us that we also need to pursue godliness in our actions. The first half of verse 14 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Notice that these are active words. To turn away from evil and to do good. You know, the fear of the Lord isn't just a conceptual idea. It should prompt action in our lives. And sometimes I fear that we can forget this. And as Christians, we become the people that just don't do bad things. We become the people that point out the wrong things that other people are doing, and we take pride in the things that we don't do. And the problem with this is that soon all we'll be known for are the things that we don't do and the things that we are against instead of the things that we should be doing and instead of the things that we are for. Now that being said, there are things that clearly we need to be against. And there are things that are evil. But God tells us what those things are. We look to Him in the fear of the Lord to inform us about what is good and right and what is evil and what is wrong. So for example, Galatians 5 says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we stand with God and His Word. And there are things in this life that we are going to have to stand against. Things that are mentioned here. So we stand against sin and evil. But how do we prevent ourselves from just turning into those people that point at others, that point at the ones who are doing the wrong things, that take pride in ourselves about the evil that we don't do? Well, number one, we need to remember the 1 Corinthians 6.11 principle. And such were some of you. That list that we just read, the list of things that precedes this verse, before Christ, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Knowing that we were keeps us humble. And then beyond that, we turn the focus to where it should be. It's not on the people out there or the people who are doing those bad things. The focus should be turned inward. As we turn away from evil, we also turn to do good. Paul doesn't just leave us with that list of negative commands in Galatians 5. He continues to give us a list of what should be evidenced in the life of the believer. So Galatians 5 goes on and he says, But since you were, but now you're not, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know, Matthew 5.16 tells us that we ought to be living in such a way that people see our good works that we might be a light to others so that they would see our good works and then give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So what does it look like to do good? Well, again, where do we go? The fear of the Lord drives us back to Scripture. We go to Galatians 6 where we find that we carry one another's burdens. We go to Hebrews 13 where it tells us, quite simply, share Share with others. John 15 tells us to love one another. Philippians 2, look out for others above yourself. Proverbs 19 tells us that whoever will look after the poor will be rewarded. James 1, verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As we read the Bible, as we understand the fear of the Lord, we realize that it's not good enough just to not do evil. That we are called to turn from evil and to pursue what is good. And so we pursue godliness in our speech. And we pursue godliness in our actions. We also pursue godliness in our desires. That last half of verse 14 says, Seek peace and pursue it. What happens when we pursue godliness in our speech and we pursue godliness in our actions, we receive peace. We experience peace when we're intentional about what we say and what we do. We have peace with God. We have peace in our mind and conscience. And we have peace with others as we live the life that God intended for us. David knows that there's some inherent friction here, that we're going to need to seek peace, to pursue it. It doesn't always come naturally. But the fear of the Lord says we desire peace. We desire peace with our Creator, and we desire peace with others. We are to seek peace with our neighbors so that we can demonstrate the peace that Christ offers us through His cross. And we are especially to pursue peace within the church. Here, the author of Hebrews informs us, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. David says, seek peace. Pursue it. It's worth going after. Are you beginning to see how the fear of the Lord is the key to the good life? Where the good life acknowledges that God knows best. And so it's our desire. It should be our desire to live as He intended because it's both for our benefit and God's glory. Then David moves beyond the fear of the Lord as the pursuit of godliness. And he'll tell us in the next few verses that the fear of the Lord brings comfort to the righteous. Look with me at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and His ears towards their cry. And you skip down to verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. What does this tell us? We have the comfort of His presence. We see that the fear of the Lord isn't just about how we act, but it's about knowing that He is near. That He sees us. That He hears us. When we are tempted to think that we are all alone, when we feel like there's no one to talk to or no one who will listen, the fear of the Lord reminds us that He is near. When we question whether or not doing the right thing is worth it, we remember that He is near. In our trouble and in our affliction, we remember that He will never leave us nor forsake us. That not only He sees and hears us, but He loves and cares for us. That just as David was delivered from his physical suffering circumstance, danger of death, but more importantly, he was delivered from his inner dungeon of self-reliance and fear. And just as God delivered David, His promise stands for you and for me. That He will deliver us out of all of our fears and troubles as well. Hebrews 4 tells us that this is why we can draw near to God. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have the comfort of His presence. But some of you, especially if there are those of you here that are in the midst of suffering or loneliness or certain affliction, you might ask, well, how do I experience the nearness of God when I don't feel it? I know you say that He is near, but I just don't feel like He's close. What do you do then? Psalm 119 151 says this, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. The correlation here is that we experience God's nearness through His Word. Even when we may not feel it, this is what Ligonier has to say. 
although we do not always feel as if God is near to us, we can be sure that He always draws close to His people when they study His Word and hear it preached. The Holy Spirit attends the reading and the hearing of His Word, instructing us, convicting us, and conforming us into the image of Jesus. We do not need to look for special mountaintop experiences to know that God is near. For He is always near in His Word. Are you feeling lonely? Do you feel like God is far away? Are you looking for a touch of His presence this morning? I'm glad you're here. Open the Word. Hear the Word. Allow the Spirit to minister you to you through His Word. This week, as you go uh, back to your lives and jobs and hecticness and schedules and maybe suffering and conflict and affliction, open the Word of God. Draw close to the throne of grace and ask for His mercy through prayer. We know that the Lord is always near in His Word. But beyond the nearness of God, we also have the comfort of His justice. Now the next few verses that we're going to read, verse 16 and verse 21, they don't seem very comforting. Verse 16 says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verse 21 says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. It doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound very comforting. And it's not. For those who are apart from God, for those who don't know Jesus, the fear of the Lord should bring actual terror. It should scare you. As you live in opposition to God, these verses bring no comfort. Know that the face of the Lord, the God of the universe, is against you. As you do evil, you are stacking upon yourself judgment that will come to you, will slay you, and end up in your judgment. There's no comfort for those who are outside of the fear of God. But there is comfort here for the righteous. Not only do we realize that He hears and sees us, but we understand that He also hears and sees the wickedness in this world. You ever wonder why evil seems to prevail while bad people seem to have it good? When we realize that God is the perfect judge, that He will account for every sin and make everything right, we are able to find comfort in knowing that He will put an end to evil once and for all. That God will hold the wicked accountable for every sin, for every deed of evil. We are comforted in knowing that God is a righteous and just judge. And we find comfort because we put it in His hands. The fear of the Lord does not take 
pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. But it should cause us to plead with others to fear the coming of the Lord, to fear His judgment, and to run to Christ. And it is here that we rest in the comfort of verse 18. That we have the comfort of His grace. Verse 18 tells us, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And here's the most comforting truth of them all. We are called righteous not because of our deeds, but because of grace. The only way we are comforted in knowing that sin will be taken care of is knowing that we have received grace. That as sinners by faith we have received mercy and we claim Christ. That outside of Him we are helpless. And this is the realization that we saw David come to as he narrowly escapes imprisonment and death. He understands that the only thing he contributed to that situation was his own sinfulness. And he was totally reliant on the grace and providence of the Lord. The good life acknowledges that the source of righteousness is not found in ourselves, but it's found in God who lives in us. The good life Your best life is one of comfort because we know that the Lord walks with us. That He will make all things right and that He extends grace to us in our time of need. That anyone, as we'll see in a moment, who seeks refuge in Him will not be turned away. So the fear of the Lord leads us to godliness and away from sin. The fear of the Lord brings comfort to those, to the righteous. And then David tells us that the fear of the Lord provides confidence despite affliction. He tells us in verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers us from them all. The verses that we just read make one thing clear. Both the wicked and the righteous will experience affliction. It's the same word used of both the righteous and the wicked. I want you to read, I just want to read a couple of verses from the life of Paul, who was a righteous man before God, who was trusting in Jesus, but who had experienced much affliction. Here's what he says. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst 
and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. That's the life of a righteous man. So what makes the difference between an affliction of the righteous and an affliction of the wicked? The difference is in the outcome. The righteous will receive deliverance. We have confidence in His deliverance. While the wicked will receive the fruits of their own labor. They will receive suffering. They will receive ultimately their own judgment and condemnation. And speaking of how these things come together, the godly, the righteous experiencing suffering, one author writes this. It says, The true happiness of the godly consists in the nearness of God and in the living experience of His help and not in being spared suffering and affliction. On the contrary, suffering is an essential part of the life of the righteous. And only he who is brokenhearted and crushed in spirit will experience what the nearness of God and His help can really come to mean. The fact that God does not forsake the godly forever, but preserves him from utter despair and from the complete destruction of his existence is the blessed experience of the presence of God and of communion with Him. A communion which is granted to the God-fearing man at the very time of his suffering. No one wants to experience suffering. No one wants to go through affliction. And it can be a hard thing to hear this. But what the fear of the Lord teaches us, what Scripture tells us, is that in suffering, that's when we really experience God. That's when we understand what it means to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. That's how we know that He is near. And maybe only how we know that He is near. When we are given grace in our times of suffering. So on what basis does the righteous get to receive deliverance while the evil receives condemnation? Well, we have confidence in His example. Look with me at verse 20, 21. He keeps all His bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned Interesting verse just apparently thrown in there. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This has a unique fulfillment. And it's only found in Christ. When God gives a law about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, He tells Israel, He says, Bring a lamb, a lamb without blemish and a lamb without any broken bones. And use that as your sacrifice of atonement to cover for your sins. And then we see in John chapter 19, 
the fulfillment in Christ. Christ has been crucified. His body is on the cross. And then John tells us, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Christ lived the perfect life that we could never live. Christ is the one who suffered in our place. Christ became that perfect lamb without blemish or broken bone. Christ is presented in Isaiah 53 as the righteous sufferer, the suffering servant. He was the one that they looked to. We have confidence because we have the example of Christ who suffered in our place. That the fear of the Lord gives us confidence despite affliction because we know it was Christ who suffered on our behalf. Verse 21 speaks to the condition of the sinful heart, to the condition of those who don't know Christ. That that same affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be Condemned. But we have confidence that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for our salvation. And we find rest in His finished work on the cross. And this is why we can also have confidence in His promise. The last verse of the psalm Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David implies by use of this word redeem or ransom that there's a cost to this redemption. First Peter puts it this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's the cost of our redemption. But that's also what secures us the promise. How can I be counted as one of the redeemed? How can I be counted as righteous? John 5:24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the remarkable promise of the gospel. That through the death of Christ, we have been redeemed. We have been bought by Him. And all who trust in Him can have assurance of their salvation. We have confidence in His promise. 
And this is what David understands, that while the righteous may not be delivered from all of their earthly afflictions and suffering, that they have the greater promise, that they have been passed from death unto life, that their sins have been forgiven. This is the story of the good life. The best life gives up control and instead it trusts the Creator of the universe. That He knows and does what is best. The good life submits to His plan even if it includes suffering. And we echo the words of Corey Ten Boom. There are no ifs in God's world and no places that are safer than other places. The center of His will is our only safety. Let us pray that we may always know it. So as we close out Psalm 34, we're given three aspects, three principles of the fear of the Lord that I hope are an encouragement to you today. The fear of the Lord leads us to godliness and away from sin. The fear of the Lord brings comfort to the righteous. And the fear of the Lord provides confidence despite affliction. May it be our aim not just to define the fear of the Lord, but to taste and see the goodness of the Lord as we seek to live for Him. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're thankful that this message is for us, for everyone who hears of Your Son, His death on the cross on our behalf, that we can hold fast to the remarkable promise of the Gospel, that the fear of the Lord includes not only the pursuit of the godliness, but the fact that You are near and close, that You hear, that You deliver and save. Lord, I pray that we walk out of here with confidence, with confidence in You, with confidence that You are who You say You are, that You will do what You say that You will do. Let us live in light of the fear of You, knowing that that's what brings us the best life. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.